Brilliant. Absolutely delighted to have you. Uh, you get the song. A quick hello to start the show. Welcome <laughs> to the show, Mike. King. It's a wonderful song. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. I hear you're a musician as well. And David was saying you were going to rap at me. Yeah, it's definitely not going to happen. But yes, I'm a musician. Brilliant. So two musicians meet. I play double bass and you rap. Is that correct? That's true. Yep. Right. And I'm the world's worst rapper. Um, and you can probably hear that from my initial song because it. Well, lucky for you, I'm the best rapper ever. Very good point. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm a punk folk musician, so I would now say I'm the best punk folk double bassist because I'm probably the only punk folk double bassist. <laughs> nice. That's easy. Right, we're going to start with your brand setup. Oh, welcome, everybody else. We're going to start with the brand setup. And what I do is look at people's brand setup. And here we go. Michael King in the UK. <laughs> it's a jewelry shop. And then mm. if we look at it in the US... It's a baseball player. Mm -hmm. For the Yankees. Then we look at it in Australia. Oh, is it New Zealand? No, it's New Zealand. Mm -hmm. And it's a New Zealand-born historian. Mm -hmm. Then we look at Ireland, and we get Michael number one of Romania, strangely <laughs> enough. Then we look in India, and it gives us several choices. It's not sure which one we're looking for. Mm -hmm. And then we look in South Africa, and it gives us pictures and choices and basically what I found really interesting here and because your name is so common mm -hmm. is that depending on where you are in the world Google will show you the thing the person or the entity the jewelry shop in the UK that it thinks is the most probable that it's a funny there's a funny thing that a lot of people don't know if you go back to the or you probably still have it on your screen the pictures that it's showing in that last serve there's a picture of Martin Luther King Jr. is that he, yeah, almost like the second from the right at the top. Wow. Because his birth name was Michael King. Wonderful. <laughs> Don't we find out some incredibly interesting things from brand SERPs when uh, we know what to look for? Yeah, it's crazy. Really? Oh, I learned something new. In fact, I learned a lot of new things. I learned about the vast number of Michael Kings there are in the world. <laughs> but there is only one Michael King SEO. Now, do you call yourself Michael? King or Mike King? Uh, when I write it out, I usually put Michael because it looks cooler, but most people call me Mike. Right, because I, I, I actually singing Mike King is quite difficult, whereas Michael King is much easier. <laughs> exactly. And also, it's my cool king. I just feel so stupid not to have noticed. <laughs> so today is a day of learning, and we're going to carry on with the day of learning with content engineering. Now, my first question is, what do you mean by content engineering, Mike? Yeah, I think what most people call semantic SEO is what I call content engineering because of like, this is the act of what you actually do to make it happen. <clears throat> and so, you know, like a, a few years ago when I was like, it depends isn't enough for me because everybody says it depends is the answer yeah. to everything. I'm like, okay, what does it depend on? And so I really started to dig more into understanding of information retrieval and so on. And so that's when I learned more about like how do search engines actually look to understand content. And so as many of us know, you know, they break it down uh, uh, pages into paragraphs and the sentences into words into entities and so on. And so the act of, you know, actually optimizing for that, optimizing for 
that statistical understanding that search engines develop of content is what I call content engineering. So a lot of the work that you're doing around entities, a lot of the work that people do around like co-occurrence and, um, you know, just like the various things that you have to do in your content to account for what Google expects. That's what I call right. content engineering. So I mean, content engineering would include what you do, I mean, co-occurrence, which is Dawn Anderson's favorite thing. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, context clouds, which are Bill Slowski's favorite thing. Mm -hmm. And that idea of building, I mean, Karei Guber was on last, uh, two weeks ago, in fact, talking about building a page around a specific entity and then tagging other smaller entities or less relevant, slightly less relevant entities onto that. You're talking basically about the same thing. Yeah, effectively. And then we're also talking about things like like topical clusters. So building out a whole section around the various topics that go around it. So you're you're also getting back into like the ideas of siloing to some degree and all these these concepts that have kind of been presented in SEO is like, you know, by themselves. And basically what I'm saying is you take all those concepts and put it together. And that's content engineering, because um you know, it's one thing to be like, okay, well, let me get my target keyword and put it in here. It's another thing to think about, okay, what are the entities that are expected around this keyword? What are the co-occurring terms? What are the, the series of pages that you need to build around it? And if you if you zoom out and think about like how that's actually done in web professions, that's like a combination of information architecture, content strategy, right. SEO, and so on. And there wasn't just like one name for it. And I would like go into these meetings like, yeah, we're going to do technical content optimization. And that's like a mouthful. But if you say something like content engineering, it's like, oh, that sounds cool. We're not doing that. Right. Yeah. And so it's really just like a good packaging of a variety of things that we are already doing in SEO. Right, brilliant. And does that allow you then to say, my strategy of content engineering comes from reverse engineering Google, which would be right. pretty cool? Yeah, pretty much. And, you know, like the way I always explain it is no one knows Google's algorithms and so on, but we can determine what they think is valuable by parsing out those pages using natural language processing and then and then looking at what these features are and then create content that kind of map to those features. And I'm not saying like, oh, let's do just like a really complex version of keyword stuffing. I'm saying like, how do we actually talk about these same subjects and make it make sense to what a user wants and also align with what Google wants? Um, I, I always, always, you know, talk about things in terms of personas and so on. And I've always thought of Google as like just one of those personas. Ooh, and I think, nice. yeah, and I think of, um, I think AJ Cohn, he, he's like personified it in a great way. He calls it like the blind five-year-old. And so uh, to that end, you know, we're just kind of incorporating Google as a persona by like building out these very in-depth briefs leveraging natural language processing to understand what are these pages made up of so that we can write pages that effectively tick those boxes while continuing to be natural to actual users. Right. And so, so in fact, Google isn't a persona in and of itself in the sense that you, you're making a page for two personas each time in that case, the, the human persona and Google's persona. And Google's persona is the same across all your pages with a, a different facing human persona who you're actually building for. 
Well, I hate to say sense? I hate to say that it depends, but it depends. And what I mean by that is, <laughs> you said you wouldn't say that. <laughs> no, nah, but I'm gonna tell you what it depends on. Whereas most SEOs, oh, are like, oh sorry, it depends. Uh, anyway, so like if you're if you're doing something for Google News and that Google persona is a little different than if you're doing it for like Ooh. standard ranking and so on. And same thing for local. And so to that end, you, uh, we probably have like you know four or five Google personas that we may be may be thinking about. But the whole point is that. When we're thinking about content, we never not think about Google. And typically when people are making content, they're like, oh, we're making content for the user now. We're not thinking about Google. We're not doing SEO content. But I don't believe in the concept of SEO content, right? Like you're either going to make content that performs or content that doesn't perform. And, um, you know, you can make content that's either going to perform organically or you can make content that's going to perform through paid media. But I'd rather you make content that works for all of that rather than being like, oh, yeah, this is the content that is, that's for people and this is the content for searching. It's like that's not valuable. At this stage. But yeah, but that, for, from my perspective, kind of that comes into I tend to say make the content for the user. You've got to figure out where you're going to be reaching out to them on paid or on social or on this platform, on that platform. And then package it for Google. And now I would be able to say package that content for the Google persona you're aiming at. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That would make sense. Again, and yeah, and you know, I just to be clear, like I don't think that we should ever be thinking of those as like separate pieces of content, right? Like you just have to have your series of personas. Because typically, when people are making content, you know, it might be two, three, four personas that they're thinking about, and that introduces like the constraints or the requirements for the page. And Googlebot is just another requirement. So the more that you keep all that together the less likely you have to like have SEO come in after the fact. I think Adam Audet said it best, you know, SEO should be invisible. And so when you're having to do it after the fact, you know, you're like shoehorning keywords into content. That's when you get that awkward stuff that no one wants to see. Yeah. Um, but if you have it baked in from the beginning, as we always say, and you do it in a good strategic way, that's when you make something that serves all purposes. Right. I mean, so baking it in from the beginning. I mean, how do you go about that? Because you're saying, well, I've got this content. I'm building it for a persona. Uh, I need to engineer it mm -hmm. both for the persona, I'm, the human persona, but also for the Google persona I'm aiming at. Uh, how, how do you make sure you're baking it in from the beginning so that packaging becomes simple? Yeah, absolutely. So it really just comes down to effective briefing for your content, right? <laughs> like, Typically, when you make a piece of content, there is a brief of some sort, unless you're just going to like go out and be like, oh, I got the subject. I'm going to write about it. Let's see what happens. But, you know, especially if you're working in the environment that we work in as an agency, we have to say like, hey, here's the idea. Now, here's how we want to execute that idea. And in that brief, you have the opportunity to say, OK, here, here are the personas that we're targeting. Here are the keywords that we should use. Here's the topics that we need to cover. Here's the questions that we need to answer. Um, here's the structured data that we want to use. And so that way, when you build this pretty robust brief, everyone that's creating content knows like, okay, I need to account for these things. And then ultimately, if what's turned in, whether it's by the client or by us or whatever, if it doesn't meet those expectations, then we haven't met the requirements and we don't publish that piece of content. So my whole point here is that you know, you just have to document what you want and then use that as the guiding principles for what it is that you're creating. And, you know, typically people are doing it the other way where it's like, OK, 
the brief says we need to write this for this audience and here's what we think this audience wants to hear, but it's not so data driven. It's, it tends to be more qualitative. It tends to be like, you know, you're reacting to what sales tells you to make or hmm. uh, what the hippo told you that you need to make and things like that. This is a more data driven approach that accounts for all the requirements for this content to actually work. Right. And, and so when you're giving the content brief to the content writers, mm -hmm. do you include the concept of schema markup or is that going to scare them away? <clears throat> um, it, so on that end, it depends on what type of content we're making. And so, you know, if we're talking about like a product detail page, right, then we're going to mm -hmm. have to say like, yeah, let's account for right. schema as you're writing this. But if it's something like, you know, an about us page, Perhaps schema is kind of secondary there, and we only got to mark up like the address or something like that, right? And so you don't have to tell the writer to account for it, but it is something we would still put in the brief so that when that piece of content is handed off to Dev, <laughs> um, it it um, it is still accounted for. Right. So yeah, just to I, be clear, just to be clear, when I say it depends, I give you options. I don't say right. like, oh, it depends. Go figure it out. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, and for people who are just listening to the audio version, Anton put it depends on the screen, and that really put Mike off. He started <laughs> laughing and forgot what he was saying. Um, I, I just quickly coming back to the About Us page, um, my, I mean, the CaliCube tool is actually based on the idea of the entity home, and the entity home is the About page mm. of the entity. And I would argue that, in fact, the About, the, 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 the text that you write for an About page mm. is phenomenally important to Google's understanding. And that there aren't content writers out there, or I haven't found any, who can write a really good about us text that isn't self-centered, that is factual, and yet is attractive. Mm -hmm. um, and then the schema market would then map to that. So that, I think, is, is from my perspective, at least, something that where I would say, yes, I would actually tell them this is the information we're trying to get in because that's what we're representing in the schema. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I was just using that as an example. Brilliant. Okay, sorry, I didn't want to contradict you and be very rude, but uh, <laughs> from, from my perspective, you, you happen to put the finger on one of my hobby horses. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, um, so I, I love the idea, the product description, obviously, or the product page, you would need this for the about page. I, I would say you need it. What about a piece of content that's more general and attractive to the users in terms of the higher up the funnel content? Would you be talking about schema or would that scare the, the content? No, I think I think schema definitely can come to play there, especially when you start thinking about like Q&A, FAQ mm -hmm. stuff. Um, you know, it all it all depends on uh, what the content is about, because obviously, as we all know, like there's a variety of different vocabularies that can be implemented using schema. And mm -hmm. so to that end, if we believe that there is an opportunity, we will put that in the brief and say, okay, make Brilliant. sure you structure this in such a way that it's going to be conducive to that. And, you know, we're also seeing like more of those annotations in the SERP where it's like, it's not, it's not explicitly structured data. It's not like schema or anything, but it may be like a table or something like yeah. that. We're going to try to account for that as well, because, you know, we know that those are good, um, places will take up more real estate in the SERP and give you more visibility. So again, as we're going through and we're saying like, this is what this content needs to be about, even if it's existing content, we're saying like, think about structuring it this way as you're writing it or as you're adjusting it. Right. And how much detail do you go into for the, the headings? Because obviously they're very important. Do you, do you impose them or do you allow the, or do you, you suggest we, the content writers write as they feel? Yeah, we suggest they write as they feel. You know, we, we will give like keyword driven um 
you know, questions that we recommend answering, a lot of times they'll lift them or make adjustments to them, mm-hmm. but we really leave it up to them because we want it to be as natural as possible. And we'll give them feedback as they, you know, turn things in and say like, hey, maybe you might want to restructure this around this phrase a bit better or something like that. But we definitely want to work from something that is more like from their head, because if we start writing as SEOs, then we all get into this like, very linear thinking around the keywords. So it's better to have something from an actual writer. And I've always been a big proponent of this, that like copywriters should be the ones writing the content that we, um, that we're talking about. Like even, you know, metadata, I've always believed that copywriters should be writing that because if you think about something like a meta description, you know, it's not just about shoving the keyword in there a bunch Mm -hmm. of times. It's about using that as kind of like the advertising tagline for the page in the search. And that's always going to be better written by a copywriter than an SEO. Brilliant. That's absolutely delightful. Now, the next question is, how do you weave images and videos into that? Yeah. Um, So images, I mean, so I'm kind of in a weird place about images because Google obviously has the technology at this point to do to do use computer vision to understand what an image is like they've. They've got APIs you can use for that. And it's clear that they're using something similar to that in videos for YouTube. That's how they're being able to say that in a combination of like natural language processing and text or speech to text, they can understand like where specifically in a video something is being talked about. But I don't see enough evidence that that's being used and like wide distribution on web pages. Obviously that's computationally expensive, um, so it's still, from my perspective, about surrounding the images with copy that's relevant to the image, using alt tags, um, file naming, and so on. And we also give recommendations around that, like basically like, hey, if this image is about this thing, use the keywords to talk about it, use the keywords to name the image file, and so on. So it's still pretty basic as far as that. And then with videos, it's still about you know leveraging those um transcripts and marking those up effectively and and so on. So I don't think much has changed around that, but I suspect in the next few years, we're going to have different conversations about it because of the fact that Google does have the technology to support understanding this content in ways that it didn't before. Right. So I mean, a lot of kind of people are now saying, well, we need videos, we need images, we need to enrich our content. You're saying that isn't necessarily the case. No, no, no. I, I definitely believe we should enrich the content, right. um, you know, partly from a UX perspective, because as we all know, the more structure, the more imagery and so on on a piece of content, the better it performs. Yeah. Like you can do side by side where it's like, you know, an article written by the same person. It's like a block of text versus something that's well structured with heading tags and images and videos. It's going to have higher time on site, more shares, more links every single time. So there's this value. It's like second order of value to it. I don't think it's inherently more valuable from an SEO perspective. Right, very good point. And and the other question of kind of when you're doing this content brief, do you build that in, i.e. do you build in the idea of user engagement? Do you get the people creating the content to think about how users are going to engage and how they can keep them engaged? Uh, yes, and, and you know, that's kind of like generally in our idea of this concept of like 10X content that we always try to go after. So it's like, Right. You know, what does 10x content look like? It, it's going to be, like I said, very well structured, a variety of different media assets and so on. And just more from the perspective of like, we know this is going to yield better UX metrics. So let's yeah. continue to go in that direction. 
Oh, brilliant. Wonderful. Now, next question is the structure of the, the silos or the ontologies or the categorization, whatever you would call it. <laughs> how, do you, how do you go about that? Do you plan all that meticulously in advance and say, this is the content plan for the next year and this is how it's all going to fit together? Exactly. We, we actually have a deliverable called the content plan that we do that lays <laughs> all that stuff out. Um, we also have an information plan that lays out, like, let's say we're talking about a new website. We lay out the taxonomy. We lay out the tagging structure, internal linking structures, all of that. So the site can be built in a way that's going to be conducive to search. And, you know, that's another aspect of this that I didn't mention when I talk about content engineering, which is the IA components. Um of like, how does all this stuff tie together? What does the navigation look like? How do we reinforce these concepts within the site um, in addition to whatever's going on, on with the external linking structures and so on? So yeah, all of that is very much baked in and thought through. And you know, it tends to be difficult for an existing site because you have to make them make a very big shift in this direction. Um, but some clients are very open to it. You know, we've had clients that have collapsed their navigations pretty significantly and it's yielded better performance. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, all of that is stuff that we're thinking through and it's all going to be keyword driven. And our keyword research is very driven around, you know, going back to the personas, like we're mapping keywords to the personas that are most likely to search for them. And um, so you're not really talking about Google by in that case, because obviously Google by is where you search or Google is where you search. Um, but we're mapping keywords that way so that it can inform the content strategy. And also, to some degree, that may inform how we think about entities as well. Because if we know that there's an entity that's related to a given persona more so, then we're going to say, okay, well, maybe we make one piece of content speaking specifically to this persona, leveraging these entities, and another piece of content that goes for the other personas and what have you. So we can make sure that there's direct alignment between you know, the searcher and the content that they're looking for. And I think that that's a bit of a departure for a lot of people because we tend to think like, okay, this one page is for this one keyword and it's supposed to go to all audiences. Because obviously anyone can search for anything, but we're trying to think of like, how do we make this actually resonate with the searcher that we're trying to get to do a thing? And so it may require that we target the same keyword differently on different pages. Right. Okay. And then from your perspective, Google gets that intent and gets the difference between the, the, the different approaches and will rank them for the different circumstances. Right. Exactly. And and I, I believe that, you know, that's the future of Google being like right. hyper personalized, like even more personalized than what you just showed by location being different from my name. Um, I think that we're going to have like these these very like micro audiences that Google is going towards. And you're seeing that their data is pushing yeah. in more of that direction, right? Like they have, um, they have like the affinity targets that you can do and like paid and so on. Right. And I think that at some point they're going to say, okay, well, you based on your, your user history and what we know about right. you and, and the places that you've gone and so on, you searching for this query, you mean specifically this. And so I think what's going to happen is you're going to have to have multiple pages about that same subject on your oh. site so mm -hmm. that they can tie you directly to that as a result. Oh, I like that idea. That's jolly exciting, isn't it? But in fact, I mean, as you said, Michael King is an amazingly good example of one keyword, mm -hmm. but multiple 
entities, multiple pages, multiple intents, depending on the geo region in our case. But then, then again, it could be that the Michael King, the baseball player, isn't interesting for somebody who's into academic history. Exactly. And like, what, so, what if I don't care about baseball? Don't show me that guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So great, wonderful people's names, an amazing way to start researching this upcoming revolution in uh, SEO and optimizing for Google uh, that Mike's just explained. Now, the the next question along is. How do you do that at scale? I mean, from, from here, what I've seen is lots of meticulous work to get it all sorted out, mm. getting the client to buy into this. I mean, getting them to buy into the micro idea, isn't that quite difficult as well before we yeah. go on to the scale? No, absolutely. So the micro idea is definitely hard to get them to buy into, but at the same time, it's actually no different from keyword research in general, mm. right? Like, like for you to buy into the idea that I need to figure out what keywords people are searching for and then I provide the content related to that, this is just an expansion on that same idea on how you can do it better. Um, and so how you scale it, I mean, it really just comes down to technologies, right? Like there's a variety of tools out there that help you to some degree get close to this. And when I say to some degree, I mean that I don't believe that the way these tools are doing it is an accurate reflection of how Google is understanding these concepts. You know, like when you think of, of some of the tools that are out there, it's like, okay, you put in the keyword, it looks at the top 20 results, and then it, it teases out features from those pages and says like, okay, you gotta talk about these entities, you gotta use these words. But I think that Google is doing that across queries to better understand it. And again, this kind of goes back to the whole concept of like, you know, name entity recognition and how it works. They're, 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 they're deriving information about a given entity across a ton of pages. And so it doesn't make sense to just look at an individual query to do this. You'd have to kind of look at the query space. So the collection of queries on that topic to understand what Google is expecting around, you know, these different subjects. And so what I'm saying here is that these, these tools are getting you a part of the way there, yep. but they're not doing it at the way the way that Google is likely doing it. Yeah, I mean that that brings to me to mind two different things. One of which is we don't know what Google knows, i.e., right. what it understands, so we don't know which parts to tickle. Mm -hmm. And the other is, as a human being, uh, a lot of this is down to my own intuition about what my persona is looking for, because that eventually is where Google is going. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, we don't know. But again, like Google's not magic. <laughs> like, you know, if an engineer was to join Google, they would look for someone who has experience with uh, natural language processing. Right. They're looking for someone who understands machine learning. They're looking for a variety of th these different things that there are a lot of open source projects that Google contributes to. There's a lot of things. There's a lot of like history behind information retrieval that we can look at mm. and have a reasonable understanding of what they might be doing. And so that's a lot of the work that we do here at iPool Rank is like, you know, don't allow us to just be like, it depends. Like, let's try a bunch of different libraries and see how close we can get to what we think Google is doing. And then test out what those what those outputs look like in our optimization and then just keep going from there until we, you know, we get to the sweet spot of performance. Mm -hmm. And we've been very successful with that. Um, so, you know, like, I, again, I'm not going to sit here and say I know how Google works, but I think I'm pretty close. <laughs> Brilliant. And how much of this analysis and the work that you do is based on your studying of uh, information retrieval? 
uh, most of it, you know, like there, there's a lot that I learned just like being in the SEO community, but you know, I guess I'm kind of similar to Dawn Anderson in that she's like, she's, well, no, she's farther on than me. Cause she's mm-hmm. like getting degrees in this stuff and so on. <laughs> um, but you know, it just wasn't enough for me to be kind of like, I look at SEOs as kind of like power users of Google, right? Like we know in and out how Google works, we, or excuse me, how to use Google. We don't necessarily know in and out how Google works, but we know like, you know, advanced operators, we know how to use the search console. But at the end of the day, we're just users. We're just users who keep playing with the inputs and then keep trying to make uh, things work. And it's a lot of like guess and check, but there's a lot that you can learn from, um, you know, the computer science behind all this stuff that can make your guess and check a lot more precise. And so my background is computer science. And so it didn't scare me to like really dig into this stuff. Um, And once I did, I was like, yeah, there's a lot of things in our space that people are just wrong about. And so I just have, I've just been able to work with my team to develop a series of hypotheses that we've been able to, you know, try and, and see what works. And we've really just like developed more of this content engineering concept and it's been very successful in the things that we do. Brilliant. Okay. And and coming back to the idea of scale, I mean, you said basically a lot of these tools don't really help you to scale. I mean, is there a possibility to scale this or, or are we kind of stuck on a case-by-case basis? No, no. So what I'm trying to say is that those tools will get you close, but I think there's just like a wide ch- chasm between what those tools are doing and what Google is doing. Right. But at the same time, anything you do in that direction is better than like just shoving one keyword into the page 50 times like people were doing back in 03. So um, I definitely recommend that people continue to use tools like a, a Surfer SEO or, or a Write Content Success Tool or Phrase or Market right. News or you know this, any number of them, Search, mer- search Metrics, Content Experience. They're, those are all great steps in the right direction. I just don't know that they are as good as what we need them to be. And so we're, we're using stuff like that, but then we also have uh, further analysis that we do on our end using, you know, libraries like Spacey and, and, and so on and so forth so that we can get even closer to what it is that Google is doing. So it may be like a first pass using one of those tools and then bringing all that in. And then we do our comparisons even further with like little scripts that we've written ourselves. And then we further optimize from there. Right, and then you, you have your plan, and is that when the human intuition comes in and the creativity you were talking earlier on about exactly. let the content writers write content? Exactly. So uh, basically it's creating a foundation for them and a clear uh, guideline or a, a clear work <coughs> explanation that they can then create on top of. And that creativity, uh, is, is there a point at which that might kill the the preparation work if they push it too far? Do you need to kind of say to them you need to you need to not push this too far well i think i think it's the same as like any creative stuff we do in business right like you know if you have a designer and you're like here's a design brief at some point they're probably going to go off the rails and there has to be revision right so right. it's not often that especially when it's a third party that we hand off one of these briefs and they get it right the first time there's always going to need to be that feedback loop between us and them um but you know, you're going to get more value out of letting them start with the constraints in mind than mm-hmm. if they just wrote without it. 
Right, yeah. I mean, so the, the constraints are, are guide rails, and you would expect people to, to leave those guide rails. But, um, I mean, it's like Andrea Volpini at Wordlift talks a lot about kind of humans and machines dancing together, and that sounds very similar. I love the idea of it because I've got this image in my head of people dancing with machines, which mm-hmm. is perhaps not so far from the truth. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and, well, the next one is kind of practical applications. I mean, from from this point, we've talked a lot about theory. We haven't really given any kind of specific examples. Have you got specific examples where this has worked for you that you can share? I mean, we do it all the time. Like, um, so the, the example that I often share is we had a client where um, we didn't have any link building as part of our engagement. So all we could do really as far as like the individual content pieces after we've done the the um, the technical work was do these types of optimizations. So it's a really competitive space. It was like um, like Medicare supplement insurance or something like that, like something that's very difficult. And the keywords are all high volume. And so all we did was these optimizations and then across like a three month period, those pages like went from ranking 50 to like three and one and something like that for all the queries that we targeted. So that's one of the other points that I make when I, when I talk about this concept of content engineering is that as SEOs, what we typically do is we, we do, you know, we do your site audit, you make your like technical adjustments, you fix your broken links, your standard, like rail canonical tag, all that type of stuff. And then the next thing you typically do is either make content or start building links to content. And those are like your primary things that people do in this space. And when you think about Google's algorithms, um, which are technically called scoring functions, you think of it as like a giant equation. And so what we do as SEOs, we kind of like over index on the part of the equation that is the link side of things. And all of these components of the equation have weights to them, right? So what Google does is they'll like turn the weight down on the link stuff and then suddenly there's a shuffling around. But the point that I make is that the weight on the content aspects are actually higher than we give them credit for. And so there have been instances where, again, like no link activity at all, and we've just focused on that, and we've seen huge jumps in rankings just from that. So Mm -hmm. what I try to impress on people when when they ask me about content engineering and, and so on is like, Try doing that before you do any of the the new content, any of the link building. See how far that gets you first and then start doing some of that other stuff. Right. Yeah, I mean, people tend to immediately jump to new content, to link building. And one of the nicest or most effective things to do is to already focus on what you've got and just make it better. Mm -hmm. Um, Engineer it better in your term. Package it better would be my term, Um, (laughs) which which is terribly, terribly true. But. So you're looking at this from a perspective of saying we don't necessarily need links <coughs> or a fast site for that matter from, from the same kind of perspective is that you can rank without these traditional SEO factors coming into play. Yes, I, I 100%. But if you're talking about like a super competitive space, obviously you need links. I'm not saying link building is dead or any of those other silly things that people would extrapolate from that statement. What I'm saying is that you can be effective and grow your positions from just content engineering. Right. (coughs) Would would topical authority come into that as well, do you think? Yeah, and I, I think that's another 
aspect that is not um, talked about enough. Like obviously Majestic has been real heavy on that. They've right. got the metrics to indicate uh, topical authority and, and things like that. But I don't think people put enough value into that. And also the, um, the value of there being topical parity on both sides of a link. Um, because, you know, we all know if you build a thousand links to a page, no matter where they come from, it's going to rank better. But you could also just build five links from pages that are directly relevant to what you're talking about, and it's going to rank better. So, you know, for me, it, it's all about like the value from the effort. And I prefer to do the things that are going to give me more value from doing less than, you know, building a thousand links when I could have just built five. So right. I agree that definitely topical authority comes into play. Brilliant. And and kind of like that idea of, um, I, I can't remember what you called it exactly, but Gary Unish was explaining the the, the theory behind uh, the bidding system that they have for the blue links and then uh, having those against the, the other elements such as videos and so on and so forth. And he was saying that it's a multiplier effect, which means that if you have one particularly weak element that has a score of less than one, it will absolutely... Um, kill your entire strategy. Mm -hmm. And he was saying basically, and obviously he's from Google, so he's trying to get across a particular message, but it's better to be a straight C student than <coughs> three A's and, a, and, a, and an F. <laughs> would, that, would that sound like a fair kind of comment? It was... Yeah, Sorry, I agree. I agree. Um, you know, I'm always careful with the Google propaganda, but I agree with that one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you've got a spectacularly weak aspect to your content, then improving that is likely to have the biggest effect on the ranking of that content. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Brilliant. I love that. It's a really nice way to finish it. Can we actually finish it by looking at your view? Because I've been thinking about that all the way through, probably <laughs> sure. not focusing enough on the conversation. This is the best view in the entire universe. <laughs> I am so jealous of this view. And for people listening on the audio, we're looking out across, is it the Hudson River? Or is it a different yeah, river? That's the Hudson. So what you're seeing, that small thing in the middle there, that's the Statue of Liberty. Over there is the, <laughs> the um, what you call it, the World Trade Center. And then over here in the distance, that's the Verrazano Bridge. In my kitchen, you can see like the um, Empire State Building and all that other stuff too. <laughs> Brilliant. Wow. And you're the only person I've ever heard say, you see that small thing, it's the Statue of Liberty because <laughs> it's not small. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant, Mike. That was delightful, incredibly informative. I loved that conversation. Uh, now I'm just going to say thank you to everybody for watching. We're going to introduce Rebecca Burbel, who's coming next week. There we go. Uh, predictive SEO using big data. I talked to her and uh, Andrea Volpini at Brighton SEO, and they were talking to me or at me rather about it and I didn't know what they were talking about and then one day I suddenly thought oh I think I've got an idea what that means so I'm having Rebecca on the show because I want her to explain it to me properly so before that can Mike can you pass the baton to Rebecca for next week you got it Rebecca go ahead and kill it looking forward to it brilliant that was absolutely wonderful so thank you Mike uh, see you next week Rebecca a quick goodbye to end the show. Thank you, Mike. That's amazing. Ooh, we did get a song. David was right. Thanks a lot, everybody. See you soon.